Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, directors, actors, costume designers, composers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And very excited for today's show, we've got a uh, Harry Greenberger is joining us around the midpoint of the show to talk about his new film, Hereafter. It is a charmer. I didn't know what to expect with this film. Um, a struggling actor. He has a bad breakup and he dies. Didn't die because of the breakup, just, you know, as fate would have it. But there's a really interesting thing happening in heaven. You don't go right to heaven or hell. You go into a purgatory until you find your soulmate. So there's ghostly dating. The questions are raised of can somebody in purgatory connect with somebody who's still living? Which, as we all know from watching Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost, yes, you can. But uh, so we've got some fun nods in there, some fun nods to uh, the the zeitgeist, uh, the pop culture zeitgeist over the years, some beautiful cinematography. So I can't wait to talk to Harry about Hereafter. But first, a film that I'm really excited about, black and white film. It's a thriller called Double Blind, and it stars... My friend, Chris Showerman, uh, Showerman, it's not often we get to see Chris in a starring role. Most of you may remember him from taking over Brendan Fraser's role in George of the Jungle. And he did George of the Jungle 2, which uh, I think went straight to, to video, DVD. But now, he and he's had so many one-offs in TV and film over the years. Uh, Supergirl, Young and the Restless, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, another film that he did that is so wonderful, Radio America. Um, and then, most recently, he started during the pandemic, and you've heard me talk about this and write about this already, uh, these exercise shorts that you can do with dog leashes. Um, and it's called The Path of Leashed, Leashed Resistance. And they are wonderful stretching exercises. Um, I love all the shoulder ones that he comes up with. Because when you're sitting at the computer and you're writing and you're screening, your shoulders really do tend to hurt. Um, But thanks to Chris and some of his great hints, my shoulders always feel good. It's the rest of me that's old and decrepit. But Chris is going to work on that for me. Uh, But we're here to talk about double blind. Um, it's real. It's a great thriller, uh, and the premise behind it is there's a team of scientists uh, on the verge of a medical breakthrough, a cancer treatment breakthrough. Uh, the lab is blown up. The scientists are murdered. There's only one left. Only one scientist has not been assassinated, and two special agents are assigned to protect her and then find out who's doing this and why. Um this, the film touches on, it's written and directed and cinema, uh, cinematography by Thomas Moser. And it's done in black and white, which adds some really nice noirish shades of gray elements to the story. 
Uh, Chris stars as one of the agents, Agent John Smith. Jennifer Jarrett stars as his partner, Agent Tucker. My dear friend, Chaz Mitchell, is also in the film. I didn't know it when I started to watch it. Chaz is in the film. It's always wonderful to see him pop up. He plays Agent Tucker's father, retired senior Agent Tucker. Catherine Phillips Moser plays one of the scientists. Madeline Moser plays uh, her daughter, uh, Casey. Very integral part of the, of the plot of the film. And then our primary assassin is played by Philip Daniel. It's a very small ensemble. It was shot a couple years ago, but as with so many distribution um, issues, sat around until finally got a distribution deal. It is now out and available. It's on Amazon Prime. It's, uh, you can find it in some other places as well. But it's really intriguing. It unfolds well. There's some great action. Chris gets to show off his physicality, uh, doing his own stunts. So I can't recommend it highly enough. But Chris and I got to talk the other day. We talked on Friday about the film because not only does he star in the film, he is also a boots-on-the-ground producer, uh, which always gives you a, a different perspective when you're boots on the ground and you're so involved in the mechanics of the film and what's happening. Plus, he is also a composer and wrote the end title song. So, without any further ado, it is a 31-minute interview. Um, Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Chris Showerman talking about Double Blind. I gotta tell you, Chris, I love this film. Oh, it's good to hear. I absolutely love it. Number one, I love... Uh, that Tom went, Thomas went with black and white. Yeah. It adds this gritty texture to it, and I don't know if he shot with anamorphic lenses or not, but it has that anamorphic grain, and it really suits this story, um, which is fascinating because it's touching on, you know, touching on big pharma. There's no kind of lecturing yes. or anything like that. But it's right. touching on what a parent will do for a child. Um, you've got the whole conflict happening there uh, yeah. between Hannah and her daughter Casey, and then um, Tucker and her Tucker and her father, who's played by Chaz. So we see yeah. that multidimensional familial stuff happening, and then there's your character, <laughs> Agent Smith, who's like. Damn, just bring it on. Come on. Live and let live. Um, and I love that. You are the glue amongst all of this. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say what you said about the black and white. Tom fought tooth and nail to keep it black and white. And I, I'm with you. I, I love the look of black and white. And I think it looks so much more cinematic. We, yeah. It was actually shot in color and then, and then desaturated. And it looks a hundred times cooler in black and white. When you when you put it in color, it just kind of looks like a whole movie. Well, you know, with stories like this, this is one of the great things about black and white that a lot of, of today's filmmakers, they don't comprehend, they don't get, and they will not go back into the 20s and 30s and 40s and really look at the master cinematographers who yeah. really knew how to play with light and shadow because you get a story like this 
and it's all about the shades of gray. And the shades of gray stand out even more when you actually are looking at shades of gray rather than saturation and desaturation of color. Right, right. And it, uh, it just well it works so well with this story. We get the ambiguity. We get the shades of gray. We get that Agent Tucker really... She's got issues, man. That woman's got issues. <laughs> she does have issues. <laughs> and you see that. The only person without issues is your character of Smith. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of happy killing people. I, I have no problem. <laughs> yeah, you have no problem. But, and seeing you in this action role, I loved it. You really, <laughs> you know, all, all of that workout and everything, boy, we really get to see that and... I'm guessing that, you know, getting your body in shape over the years, and, you know, this film was shot a couple years ago, yeah. that has to be part of what led you to do your Leash series on fitness. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, my my affinity for working out, and um, and during the, during the pandemic, when... When they were, you know, all the gyms were closed, I and mean, that's, that's the thing that really pushed me into finding some kind of household appliance, some kind of tool that, that I could use that wasn't necessarily exercise and use it as an exercise tool. But, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's all part of it. How did, because you're a, a producer, and I'm sensing a boots-on-the-ground producer for Double Blind, um, yeah. you know, how did this story find its way to you? Well, Tom wrote it, so the director and and his, his friend Raina um, wrote it together. I think it, Tom had the story idea, and then Raina fleshed it out. And then, of course, it, as with every movie, it keeps getting rewritten right up and through the editing process. Um, but it, uh, it it kind of developed. I mean, Tom wanted to do a, a spy thriller noir type feel, and he was he was pretty adamant from the get-go about making it in this French New Wave style, mm -hmm. which I'd, I'd never heard of before. And so he had me watch um, the Polish Brothers did a movie called For Lovers Only. And I guess a lot of French New Wave is these quiet romance, romance movies. Um, so the, the thought of taking this, this approach, this technique, and mashing it up with a, a spy genre was very appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right about the boots on the ground thing because we all, you know, the, the acting in front of the camera is a tiny part of what any of us did. We, we all wore different hats to try to make it work because we made this thing for no money at all. Well, the thing is, you may have made it for no money at all, but it doesn't look that way. Thank you. It looks much better because, trust me, I've seen no money at all picture, you know, films. <laughs> and boy, oh boy. They look like no money at all. Um, you know, but then I've seen films like Primer, perfect example. They made Primer years ago for $7,500. Right. And, it wasn't much more than that. Yeah, and it just, it looked, it was great story, good performances, you know, the whole nine yards. But, yeah, you can do a lot with a little bit of money. And part of part of the success of this is is. Tom's camera work, 
because keeping so keeping the camera work contained number one you've got minimal locations but so much of this takes place in the cabin um you've got the lab nothing really goes wide everything stays intimate so we're focused on the characters right and right. with a story like this when you do that that's where you can really elevate the production value and the look of the film yeah and that's that's true you can cut when it when it is tight like that you can concentrate your efforts into a smaller space <laughs> and uh, and really raise what's in front of the camera you know bring up the production value of what's in front of the camera when it's not that much you know did you have the luxury of any rehearsal time on this because there is a fair amount of action happening here and then you're also dealing with a child a young actor yeah um so we did we never had a rehearsal day for instance but uh when it, Jen and I had a lot of a lot of scenes together so quite often you know we'd be hustling to set up a shot and and set dress the place and Tom's working with his camera and then if there's you know time between him fiddling with his camera and us you know performing the scene we'd go off into a quiet corner and 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 run it but we we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time at all um for the for the fight choreography my buddy jader jader harris uh, did a lot of the fight choreography and so that was rehearsed in in slow motion because we <laughs> we didn't you know, we didn't have enough money for anyone to get hurt, so it had to be done right the first time. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, because of your own athletic prowess and physicality, were you involved with Jader in developing the fight choreography, or did you leave it to him and then just do what he said do? Um, yeah, you know, we all chipped in. Yeah, I was involved uh, in it. Jader, I had a particular talent, not only because he's he's also a fighter he you know as as you know fought competitively but um uh he also has a sense of what's gonna look good to the camera mm -hmm. so he knew not just how to choreograph the fight but including the camera in that dance to know what angle we're selling so you can do something safely but the camera sees it as a direct hit yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it truly is a dance. Anytime you get into fight choreography or action, it, it it's not just your opponents, your human component, human component opponents. It's also the camera is part of that dance too. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's critical. And you had some really cool moves, especially getting shot. That was good. <laughs> Yeah, when I got shot, that was there's there's not much trickery to that one. I mean, you just have to fall, and I'm running, <laughs> running, and then get shot, and having the the bullet, which is of course imaginary, hit you hard enough to throw you backwards. That was just no one. Okay, well this is gonna hurt a little bit, but we gotta do it. So uh, it's funny because I was as I was watching the film, and I've got my notes here. I was making notes while I was watching, and I put, "Damn, Chris gets shot." <laughs> now a really striking thing about your character of smith is the dynamic in the relationship with 
Madeline Moser's Casey. Yeah. Watching the two of you together, Chris is fantastic. Oh, thank you. You know, how, how did you go about bonding with her so it looked so natural, so effortless? Because then you've got, um, you know, you got Jen's character of Tucker. She ain't bonding with anybody. Not with you, not with Chaz's character as her dad, not with Catherine's character of Hannah, not Madeline's Casey, nothing. Right, yeah, she's just playing the cool thing. Well, it, interestingly enough, outside of the movie world, we're all actually pretty tight because, um, you know, Tom and Catherine are married. Madeline is their daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, both Jen and I have known the Mosers for years, years and years. So I've seen Madeline grow up. So I've I've always, you know, had a soft spot in my heart for her. So it's easy to, to have a close relationship on camera. It was probably harder for Jen to seem like that cold, cold bitch because she's she's actually extremely close to the girls. So, um, I mean, yeah, that was that was kind of fun to get to be sort of a, a father type figure to Madeline during the during the movie. Yeah, that I loved watching that dynamic develop through the film, because first, you know, Madeline's doing such a great job as being skittish as Casey. Yeah. And, you know, then slowly, you know, you're the one that brings her around and gets her to engage. And that really, and as you said, it's like a father figure, and because we already established that there wasn't a father in the picture. Right. Um, Right. That really, and here again, it plays into that family dynamic, with Tucker being estranged from her father, mm-hmm. uh, with from Frank, so yeah. we essentially we've got these two females with no real father figures to speak of. Yeah, good point. Good point. And for for John, for my character, um, I feel like Madeline was was his opportunity to actually have an arc. Otherwise, he's just you know this badass that is trying to look cool all the time and and playing with guns but to have Maddie with him we see him you know start off as a playboy and then by the end of the movie the one girl that's texting him isn't isn't one of his quote-unquote girls you know it's the the girl that he cares more about which is his little girl Maddie yeah no (laughs) just just the relationships are just so well developed here um, and that really that stands out between that and the black and white photography, that really stands out with this film. Plus the plausibility of this story. This is not a far fetched story. No, no. In fact, this, I'm sure elements of it have have happened in some situation. Not that this is based on any one true incident, but yeah, you're right. You're right. We can definitely. Uh, believe that this could happen now. Well, and you know, when we get our two CEOs in there, it's like, look, you don't believe either one of them. They're both lying, and they're both <laughs> they're both going to do whatever we want. And we have seen that play out in real life. Yeah, you know. that above the law thinking you're too big to fail and too big for the law to apply to you. Yeah, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do to get what I want. We see that in corporate America, and we've seen it for decades. Yeah. 
So there is so much believability here. You know, an interesting part of this film, Chris, is how many in the car scenes there are. That's always tough whenever you're shooting inside a car. Um, number one, metaphorically, it really enhances the dynamic between John and Jessica. Um, you know, so it's kind of, you know, you're going to be in her face. She's going to annoy the heck out of you, but you're not going to let it annoy you. You're going to annoy back. Um, but that... It's, you know, technically challenging when you shoot in cars, but I noticed for the most part the cars were parked and stationary so that you didn't have to worry about air conditioning and traffic noise. That's a really, that's a really good point. The audio, it always plays at least, in my opinion, 51% of, of the experience of a movie. You know, yeah. we, we depend more on what we hear than what we see to really get a feel for what's what's going on. That's why you can always tell if it's a crappy, you know, or, or a chintzy put-together project when they skimped on the audio because they, everybody is thinking about what they're seeing and not thinking about what they're hearing, but we feel that audio portion of the, of the movie. So you're right. You're right. When when you have to deal with those elements, um, it it throws another, another level of, of thought into it. The lucky thing for us with the car, there was three of us most of the time, in the two to three of us most of the time in the car. Um, and when we were driving, Tom would be the fourth one. We had this one-man crew of, of Tom who had <laughs> was doing audio and video at the same time. So he'd sit in that third seat, and we'd, we'd just trade seats depending on whose close-up it was <laughs> and have him turn around. You know, if he was sitting in the passenger seat, turn it around shooting Catherine in the back seat, or you know, sitting in the back seat, filming a two shot of me and Jen, whatever it was. Um, so yeah, it was it was such a great lesson in, in guerrilla filmmaking and what's possible when you just go, okay, well, let's just do it, and we'll figure it out. You know, how exciting is that for you to work on a film like this that is guerrilla filmmaking? I love it, and I particularly loved this this exercise because with Tom's idea of doing it uh, in a French New Wave style, we didn't have to take a lot of time. There were no lights to set up. There was he was the the camera and audio department all in one, so you could move so quickly compared to being with a big crew and a, and you know lumber along laboring over the way the lights hit and the way the with with us it was just like well if you're sitting in the right place and we have a little bit of light on your face let's go and we were able to cover so much ground so quickly and it was really up to up to the actors to to succeed or fail based on how prepared we were when when he said action yeah i i i love guerrilla filmmaking but I love it even more when you when a team can pull it off like this one is pulled off. Oh, thank you, Deb. You know, um, what took so long for this to get into the mainstream now and be on Amazon Prime? Great question. Um, I I don't claim to understand what happens in the distribution process, but 
it was definitely with it being black and white, we had a ton of, of pushback uh, because nobody felt like a black and white, anybody wanted to see a black and white movie. And none of the distributors wanted to touch a black and white movie. So I have a friend who is a, a sales agent for movies. And as a favor to me, he took it on to see if he could get it out to anyone. And he does a lot of work with ammo content. So, um, so my friend Phil took it to ammo and ammo was, was able to get it on to Amazon prime and also sold some territories of it as well. So it's actually out there in the world and, and India, I guess right now. <laughs> of all places. I was going to say <laughs> of all places, India. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're waiting for the Antarctica contract to close, and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody talks about Antarctica distribution. They really right. should. There are about sixty people living down there full time. <laughs> exactly, and they would love uh, movies about scientists because they're all scientists. That's, see, that's just it. It is a new untapped market. <laughs> you need to get on that. Get on that. Right. We'll tell Clint. We'll tell Clint to get on it. Exactly. We'll, we'll expand PR in that, the very south. That's it. You know, Clint, you know, hey, and he's down under. He's a lot closer than you and I are. That's true. Right. He can probably see it from his back porch. It's very possible. Very possible. <laughs> now, with production finally, you know, starting to open up, some, some films more than other with all the protocols in place. Right. Do you see an uptick? in scripts and potential work coming your way? Well, there's definitely an uptick uh, in, in work in general compared to the pandemic where it was, you know, a desolate wasteland. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of auditions come in. I haven't booked anything uh, of that coming in. But despite that, I've, you know, been keeping myself uh, busy finishing up there was a movie that I was working on that is just getting finished up and hoping to get turned out pretty quickly called The Method. Mm -hmm. So that's that's been the only only project that's like concrete that's actually going out right now. But fingers crossed, you know, your lips to God's ears that there will be an uptick in work in the near future. Because, you know, a lot of actors and even directors I've been talking to, it's, yeah, there's, we're looking at stuff. We're looking at stuff. Yeah, we're we're doing Zoom auditions. Have you had to do any Zoom auditions yet? Or I I have yeah, and a ton of of self tape auditions. My my team's been great with getting me a lot of self tape auditions. But those, yeah, I don't know. It's it, <laughs> it's a double edged sword. It's great because you can stay home and make this audition perfect. But you're never sure that it's getting watched or how much of it gets mm -hmm. watched because I think the understanding is is that you know if you're lucky somebody might be seeing ten seconds of it and it may be a casting assistant someplace where who's just trying to thin out you know the the two thousand auditions that are coming in for them because they're no longer limited to if I'm a casting director this is a wonderful renaissance for that industry because you're no longer limited to how many people you can physically get into a casting room in the one day that you've rented it. Now you can, you know, whereas before maybe you could bring in 50 people for a role. Now there's no limit. 
and and also there's it, there's less of a drain on your time because you don't have to you know shake hands and say hi and and actually sit through the whole audition you can just watch 10 seconds of the audition and go okay moving on and churn through a lot of talent that way so hopefully that works for them but it's it's definitely harder on the performers now i know some people it's, it's like self-tape they love self-tape but zoom auditions I'm hearing quite a bit from people about technical glitches and they don't know how the reception is and and things along those lines. So I don't know. It's like a double-edged sword. Which one is better? Which one is worse? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I've only had one live, like a Zoom audition, and it was through um, Actors Access. It was, it was a service called Ecocast Live. And... It was pretty early on when they'd they'd released that product of EcoCast Live, and there were it was very buggy. It was maybe the worst audition I'd ever done. It was a callback, so doubly frustrating um, because it was glitchy, and you just don't feel like you can put your best foot forward. If I had a Zoom audition, because I feel like you know that company has, has worked out the bugs, and most of us have had enough experience with that piece of software to to know how to use it, um, I think that would go better. And at least with those live auditions, even if they're remote, you know that somebody is watching it all the way through because yeah. they have to. They don't have a choice. Somebody's got to be sitting on the other side reading lines with you. Yeah, the whole thing is a catch-22. Yeah, um, we, right. We, we just need everything, everybody to be able to show up and do their work and do it in person and make that personal connection. Because that's that's one of the big things is is you lose that personal connective tissue. So you, true. Because you could have a bad audition via Zoom or or whatever system, or the tape could, or a self tape could not be watched. But you could have a bad audition in person. But there's something about a personality that will come through in person. One million percent, and I think that's that's the goal is is to get in the room, which is, you know, we didn't realize how good we had it back in the day when that was the only way you do it is you show up and act in front of another human being. Um, yeah, so true. That, that's really insightful. Old school, come on, old school. People are going to find <laughs> out the analog world <laughs> has a lot more advantages. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Besides, we, we tell stories about human beings, so we shouldn't take the human element out of it. That's it. So now at, yeah. the, now at the end of the day, everybody can now see Double Blind. I'm curious what this experience of making Double Blind, what did you take away from it as a producer, as an actor, as a storyteller? that you can now implement and incorporate into your future work? Uh, what a great question. It, you know, what lots, and we could talk for hours about guerrilla filmmaking and all that I learned about, you know, just uh, some of the ways to, to shortcut the system and, and you know, stealing locations and all that. But I would say the, the one experience that that I took away from it that's never happened to me before but it was it was a great story when we're shooting you've seen the whole the whole film mm -hmm. um, so you know at the there's 
there's a scene about a hostage uh, exchange. It's, mm-hmm. it's toward in the third act or kind of nearing the climax of the movie. And this hostage exchange is taking place inside of a, a dam. Uh, we used Hanson Dam, which is up by where I live. In I North know it well, yeah. Yeah. And that's, it used to be a big lake. Now it's drained and that's, that's all parkland and people can hike back there and they can ride their horses back there and so we were within our legal rights to just go over and start shooting because you don't technically even need a a permit there uh, to shoot but we were all toting around guns and (laughs) and weapons so things were going swimmingly well we were trying to be respectful of everybody else that was around and and you know keep our props out of sight until we used it. But about one in the afternoon, as we're we're trying to work our way through this this technical hostage exchange, um, we hear over a bullhorn, we hear, come out with your hands up. <laughs> we have you surrounded. <laughs> and there were five squad cars that had worked their way down, which is not easy to get down to where we were in that basin. Uh, five squad cars, I was the first one to come out, and I was slowly coming out with my hands up. They all had their doors open in, like, the, the combat stance that you'll sometimes see squad cars with the, the guys protecting themselves behind their open doors. Um, so 10, 10 officers with a helicopter on the way, and uh, I said, fellas, we're, we're, we're just making a little movie. <laughs> oh, my God. I got, I got handcuffed. We thought we were... We were, you know, going to lose the rest of the day. Uh, they were all very nice, though. By the end of our discussion and them checking out all of our weapons and and uh, seeing that they were fake, but also complimenting on, on us, they they all said, "Wow, these are these are really good replicas. This looks like a real thing." So, <laughs> so at the end of this this exchange, um, they said, "Well, we think you should probably just consider yourself lucky and go home." And we said, well, how about if we just stay here and finish the rest of our day without the gun? I said, don't let us hear about you again. So <laughs> so we got to stay and, and finish shooting on that scene, which is, which is what's in the movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, are we going to see you stepping behind the camera again? You've done it before. Um, so I'm curious, will we see, and you did it with Radio America, you know, you wrote yeah. the script, you directed, are we going to see you venturing more in that direction as well as boots on the ground producing? Because I really get the sense you like that boots on the ground involvement. I I love, yeah, I love being right there, absolutely. And it's, you know, there's something magical about being on set and dealing with problems as they come to you and knowing that a lot is riding on, you know, pushing the day forward, come what may. Um, So I love that. I love the pressure of it. I love the intensity of it. Um, I I would love to produce more. I, I enjoy directing. I don't have a need to direct anymore, but if it landed in my lap again, of course, I would embrace it and run with it because, you know, storytelling is storytelling. So um, it, it's fun to be in a different seat and, and seeing that process from, from a different place. But absolutely, I'll be producing again, yeah. as well as acting, which is my first passion. And producing, any kind of scripts in particular 
that you'd look for that you'd want to get involved with? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't have a particular genre that I'm married to, but I would look for fascinating stories. I think any story that surprises me, any story that that tugs at my heart in a new way that, that I haven't, or, or talks to my humanity in a new way, is, is a story that I feel like might need to be out in the world and it'd be worth you know the hell of going through production to make it happen so so i'm always i'm always open and on the lookout for a, a surprising new way to to tell you know a human story that would connect with people in a unique way oh chris this has been so much fun again i'm so oh. glad i got to talk to you about double blind i'm so happy to see a new film with you in it Thank you. Thanks. Well, believe me, I am too. I'm ecstatic that we had something come out. And even if this has been in the can for a while now, it's, it, it feels fresh and new all over again because it's finally, you know, being released to the world. And it's not with you just stepping into a minimal role. This is, you're carrying more than half of this film. Oh, thank you. And, uh, well, I, I loved it. I loved the experience. And I love that you sat down and watched it all. I, I, that I, means so much to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're a doll. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, Chris, this has been so fun. I can't wait till we get to talk again. Me too. I look forward to it. Maybe sometime we'll actually get to be in person, have a coffee together and chat. You're the best. Thank you so much. And that was Chris Sharman talking about the wonderful Double Blind. And I got to tell you, in all my years, I've never had an anecdote about a sh- about shooting a film like this with real cops actually showing up and they've and the actors getting handcuffed and you know have have guns pointed at them uh, by LAPD. So see the film; it's great. And now we're going to switch gears. From a thriller to a sweet, charming, wonderful tale about the hereafter with Harry Greenberger. Hi, Harry. Uh, Hi there. Thanks for having me. I am so thrilled. What a precious film Hereafter is. Oh, thank Uh, you. That's great to hear. I didn't know what to expect uh, when I watched it, and I was utterly charmed and enchanted watching this relationship between the characters of Michael, who is in dating purgatory, trying to find a soulmate (laughs) so he can get to heaven, uh, and Honeybee, who is still, she's alive and on earth. And it is just, watching the chemistry between Andy Carl and Nora uh, Arnazetter, is just uh, Arna Zadair. Arna The two of them are magical. They leap off the screen. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I agree. And it just, but the whole story, the fact we have this this actor, a struggling actor, and he goes through a bad breakup in an airport, uh, mm-hmm. dies, and then. Doesn't go right to heaven, but he gets caught in this, you know, the the dating purgatory, which is so beautifully designed. And you have Christina Ricci as Scarlet, who is the guardian, 
who explains the rules to you. You're dead. Here's what you got to do. And she doesn't want to answer any questions. Um, So you get some humor in there. And then poor Michael, he's got to find a ghostly date as a soulmate before he totally disappears. Your visual design, Harry, is so wonderful. You have so many beautiful little tidbits. Number one, your lighting, the cinematography, Chris Walter's cinematography of the dating purgatory is beautiful. But you bring that in. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant cinematographer. Oh, the overly white, white, white. It's like a million watts of GE bright white light bulbs. Um, (laughs) And it's stunning. You get that whole ethereal feel. Um, And it feels, for me, it feels more heavenly than all the imagery we see of clouds all the time. But then you add these great little touches where out the window, in the distance, we see bodies getting, raising up to heaven, up to heaven. They're faint, but okay, they have obviously, they found their soulmates and they're making the rest, they, they got that express elevator the rest of the way. Um, <laughs> just those little details add so much. But then when we have Michael wandering the earth with other souls that are black shadows until they actually do start, they can actually see each other and mix and mingle. You have, you add in Times Square with just snow and static on all the billboards, which you then, once Michael meets Honeybee, all of a sudden there's color, there's vibrancy, the billboards come to life. Yeah. Um, it, there's so much happening here. Where do you even begin to conceptualize a film like this on paper and then translate that to visuals. Oh, well, that's, well, first of all, thank you for saying all that. That's, uh, I love, it's amazing to hear somebody uh, sort of encapsulated. I haven't, you know, heard another person really uh, sort of try to wrap it up like that so well yet. And so that was beautiful to hear you, like your take on it and your, uh, you know, your, um, encapsulation of the of the idea so uh, i just want to thank you for that that was beautiful and um as far as where it came from is i i always say um i don't know if you're hearing the weird interference on your end but it's maybe it's just my phone um but uh i always say like what happened was i i had like a bad breakup similar to what happens at the beginning of the movie uh but as i drove away from the breakup i i started thinking about well if i if I if I died now, I'd die alone. And I also started to think about how um, that moment when you've just had your heart broken and you've had your mind all twisted up, that's when everybody starts telling you you got to get out there and meet someone. And it was I just kept focusing on the fact that that that's the worst time to meet someone because you're the you're the worst version of yourself mm-hmm. when you're heading out there with your mind twisted up and your heart broken and your attitudes on relationship turned sour and so i thought to myself um I, I wanted to see sort of what would happen if you kind of almost put a metaphorical gun to a character's head to make them have to find someone then and the fact that i had had that thought about how i would have died single um i i just really thought well then the afterlife becomes the great metaphorical way of putting the gun to the head of the character and say 
pushing him in the direction of, but if you had to find someone now, how would you become the best version of yourself again? And I just kind of started extrapolating from there <laughs> and uh, sort of like, and what would the afterlife be like? And what would, you know, um, and it's sort of fun to set up a universe with your own little rules. So uh, that became kind of a fun thing. It took a long time to write it because of that, because you kind of have to like figure out the rules and then you have to follow your own rules. And, uh, and, it, and it like a lot of I've heard people say that it seems like the attitude of the film is single shaming. And I thought, no, it's I, I was I wrote it in a place of great loneliness at the time, uh, quite a while ago. And it was meant to be like single sympathizing rather than mm -hmm. single shaming about how the world if a if a person is has their heart broken that everywhere they look it feels like everyone else has someone and uh it feels like the world has been set up for couples when you're when you've had your heart broken and uh, i was kind of trying to satirize that uh and at the same time sympathize with 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 people who felt lonely and felt like dating was an impossible hell to somehow get across well, Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and you really capture that with Andy Carl's character of Michael. And then, of course, Michael Rispoli, who we never see enough mm. of and I think is so underrated. I love Michael Rispoli. I agree. Um, his character of Angelo, who was essentially Michael's BFF when they were both alive. Mm -hmm. um, and now mm -hmm. they're, they're BFFs in, the, in, the, in that dating purgatory. But you see both sides of the coin with the two of them. We've got Angelo who, hey, I'm happy sitting here in my old apartment in my parents' building because they're not too anxious to rent it, so I got somewhere to go. And then you've got mm -hmm. Michael panicking. I got to find somebody. I got to find true love. I got to, yeah, what do I do? What do I do? Answer my questions. So we see both sides <laughs> of the coin. And that, that, I think, is so important. So you don't have single shaming. You don't have, you know, couple shaming. It's like, this is just how it is. Some people want to be single. Some people don't. And then you throw in Honeybee with her stalker, Patrick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's okay. Here we Here's somebody who could have been partnered with someone, but the guy is a psychotic nut job. Uh, so, yeah. so you're showing us all, you know, all the different potent, all the different dynamics here, and you do it non-judgmentally, and it works. It works so well, Harry. Oh, thank you so much. How... I, it's it's amazing to hear you say that. It's you know, it's it's hard when you're typing something in your apartment, uh, you know, years ago. It's hard to know what will resonate and what won't resonate. So to hear that it resonated with you, that, that means the world to me. And I, uh, you know, we worked, my producer, Carmine Famigletti, and I you know, worked so hard for so long to get this done. It's a, it's a labor of love. It's a low-budget film, but it's, um, you know, to, 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 the whole purpose isn't so much to make money, although, that, you know, that's always not, that would be a nice <laughs> bonus, but the, the, the purpose is, you know, to hear someone say that it moved them or touched them or that they felt something from it. And so that's, you know, that's the that's the ultimate reward. And to hear you, to hear you say that is um, is quite moving, if I can say that. You know, you get this down on paper. You create a mm -hmm. world with your own rules. And, of course, Scarlet is, she is the one that takes your rules and essentially explains them 
to us as mm-hmm. we go through the film as she's explaining them to Michael, who isn't getting answers fast enough, which is so many of mm-hmm. us. Um, when did you start visually conceptualizing this? Because, as I said, your visuals are so key here. We have the beauty of dating purgatory and this white-on-white-on-white world that Scarlet is in, our holding you know, our, our holding pattern, which is kind of like a subway station, metaphorically. And, of course, a lot takes place yeah. in the New York subway, subway system itself. Um, mm-hmm. But then you, play, you and Chris, you play with saturation and color so that we have Michael watching his family going through his stuff. His mom saying, you know, he's not dead. I, I'm not ready for him to be gone. He's not gone till I say he's gone. But the color is kind of muted and it's washed out a bit. Mm-hmm. But once Honeybee enters the picture, exactly. sat- saturation is, is elevated. And as I said before, all of the billboards in Times Square, which were suddenly just static snow, like TV went off the air at 2 o'clock in the morning again. And nothing's mm-hmm. coming back on till 6 a.m. Um, yeah. But then bright, vibrant color and neon everything it's richer it's even it's and you see it feels like you can tell he's michael's falling in love as is honeybee mm-hmm. because it's not just natural color it's heightened and it's that vibrancy exactly. of life so you're wondering okay is michael going to get a reprieve and be able to like be alive can he come back or you know what what's going to happen here but so much of that happens with your visuals. So I'm curious how you and Chris, when you started conceiving this visual design, because I'm in love with it. Well, well, thank you. It's uh, the funny. The funny thing is, uh, uh, Chris Walters came on board sort of late in the game, but uh, uh, um, a lot of the general sense of what I was looking for was already there uh you know we had had another dp who i'd worked with before on things who was supposed to do it and then he got like the opportunity of a lifetime to do something else that he couldn't turn down and so with only a few short months to go before we started shooting chris walters came aboard and he is a brilliant artist as a director of photography and also a great writer and a director in his own right but he came aboard and he took what i told him which was you know, sort of the same for a long time, but and he he made it, he elevated it uh, almost incalculably, incalculably. <laughs> I couldn't even say it. Um, uh, and everything that I described to him, he managed to bring it up a level. And I had always said, like, well, I felt like once he meets Honeybee, um, the world should open up into Technicolor, like Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brought that to life. And when I described what I was looking for with uh, uh, with Scarlet's office, for instance, uh, he went way beyond my expectations. So while a, a bunch of the visual ideas were already there, but uh, Chris Walters is so gifted that uh, um, that it you know I, I I can only take credit for sort of the initial kernel of that, and then the the final thing that's on the screen really owes a hell of a lot to his artistry. And um, he's done, uh, you know, maybe a few dozen features over the years. And, uh, you know, I would I would love for him to do everything I ever do the rest of my life because he's, he's fun to work with. He's endlessly creative. And he, 
he's he shows up each day with such crazy enthusiasm. I, I was like, could I have whatever's in your coffee? Because <laughs> uh, uh, you know he's got sort of a wonderfully mad scientist uh, type quality around him, uh, about him, and he, uh, you know, he just always was looking for a way to elevate what we were doing, and uh, he uh, basically always found a way. Well, and, so- uh, you know, always with no time or money to do it either. Was, you know, <laughs> like if you knew how much time we had in those locations, you'd laugh at what we got because we, uh, he managed to, you know, we'd, we'd hand him an impossible task. If we have eight hours to shoot in the, or uh, eight hours to shoot in the train station, everything that has to be in the train station, we've got eight hours to complete it. And, uh, and somehow he, he'd bring us a miracle at the end of every day. Yeah, uh, it's and something else. Another element, visual element. He has a great command of focal length, with really mm-hmm. bringing the foreground forward, especially in the first half of the film, uh, when Michael is he hasn't met Honeybee yet, and mm-hmm. there's a great distinction between the foreground and the background, mm-hmm. so that he so that Michael Absolutely. so Michael feels almost like he's just a paper doll that has just been plopped down. Uh, mm-hmm. in Times Square or mm-hmm. on the sidewalk. And I found that really interesting to have that great distinction, um, that focal length, that distance between your foreground and your background. And that really adds another metaphoric storytelling layer from a visual standpoint. Uh, and it, it works so well. And you get into the lighting and you take a look at Angelo's apartment. He doesn't turn any lights on, so it's all like a bluish gray because he's kind of, mm-hmm. he's, he's single, he's sitting there, he's drinking his beer. That's the other thing about this. The only thing that people in the ghostly dating plane can do is drink and read books. That's some well, combination, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> yeah, and talk to each other. And that's, you know, I thought they should... Uh... I thought they should be allowed something. It was sort of a parody of, it was always meant to be a little bit allegorical of how like the dating world works. So mm-hmm. I thought, um, I thought that they should at least be allowed that sort of uh, um, social lubricant of the alcohol and also sort of the nerve calming part of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's so much a part of the adult dating scene that I thought it would almost be difficult to remove. And then I also thought um, if we're being asked to, to actually figure out what love's, could mean to each of us individually then removing our smartphones and tvs and and all of the other distractions but being left um a way to still enrich yourself when you're stuck Mm -hmm. there for a period of time uh that's why i thought books would be a beautiful thing to be allowed you know i thought of when you when you're on the subways in new york's in new york subway system you'll sometimes just see people's cell phones don't work so well there. So there's a lot more people with books down there mm-hmm. and it feels like it's a different world because it, it's, you know, tons of people are on their cell phones, of course, but um, I just started noticing that. And I thought, well, if you were going to leave people uh, force, take away their devices and force them to focus on each other. But if they, if they haven't sort of grown as people, at least leave them some way to enrich themselves uh, and come back to the next time they meet someone with a little bit of extra in their heart and soul. And so that's why I thought, you know, it's a, it's sort of a reader's fantasy about the world where it's like, well, people would, would um, dive into their own imaginations and books and things like that, and then come out maybe having learned something about themselves, and then they would be a newer version of a more improved version of themselves the next time they met someone and, and opened their mouth and tried to think of something to say that was original for, because uh, it's really hard, uh, you know, 
um, in the dating world, that always felt like, a, how would you ever have the any idea how to begin a conversation with someone with something that would actually single you out as somebody that they were that they should be interested in talking to? Mm-hmm. And so um, the pain of that and the uh, the the pain of dating is something I, you know, went through, of course, and then uh, something I sympathize greatly with, or else I wouldn't have written it this way. And I, <laughs> I really felt like the, you know, the message I was trying to get in there was the, the, the pain and and desperation and sadness of uh, and heartbreak. Uh, that is all, you know, worth uh, worth it to get to the, you know, the possible love at the end of that rainbow. The possibility of love makes it uh, worth all of that heartbreak. Well, and, and of course, you bring in some very cerebral titles and discussion on the books, too. You've got Angelo reading Vonnegut and commenting on, mm-hmm. on Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and don't think I didn't notice that lovely little classic, Farewell, My Lovely, propped up on a bookshelf uh, <laughs> at the home of the woman that Patrick goes to visit. Um, yeah. You know, that beautiful little touch there. Uh, and... The speed dating at the bar, Michael, with all of these, the speed akin to speed dating is hilarious. So you give us plenty to laugh at as well. But you really incorporate the social zeitgeist, the pop culture zeitgeist, and it plays so well. And this also is a testament to your editor, to Sarah Corrigan, in your pacing and finding those beats to keep that flow going as Michael is searching. Of course, then once he meets Honeybee, you don't want it to end. You don't Mm -hmm. want it to end. You want it to just stay. You want to capture that moment in time. And that's really very elegantly done. Well, thank you. I I got lucky that in college, I went to film school at Ithaca College, and one of the other film students was my friend Sarah Corrigan. We met in college in the editing rooms in our film school, we were we both had the same idea, which was uh, if you signed up for the last slot of the night, you got to edit all night. Uh, <laughs> everyone else had to have these three-hour slots. We both got that same sort of uh, ruthless or competitive idea that, well, if I take the last slot, I I can just you know close the door when I leave. And so we really bonded as friends over many, many nights editing back then. And then she edited both of my features. She edited my first one a few years ago. And we work really well together. We, we've known each other for like 35 years now. And um, she she worked in the editing department on six Woody Allen films and it edited so many films over the years, Jeff Lipsky's films. And mm-hmm. she's, she's very gifted at um, keeping an eye on what actually is needed in the moment and what gets to the essential truth of the moment. And she's great at paring away anything... Uh, extraneous and uh she's also we've worked together so long that she's great at telling me when i'm you know when i'm sometimes completely wrong or full of shit or like holding on to a moment that can be excised and in the end to me the movie just feels like it's you know i know it runs a little long but it still uh, feels like everything in there needs to be there to make it work the way it does and so that's that is all, all credit i could possibly give for that would go to sarah corrigan who's who's a lovely human being and also um, a simply amazing editor and uh, and does it all with just kindness and, and friendship and uh, you know we have fun working together Well, and, and you know not to give away any spoilers in the film but you give us a payoff 
that is more than satisfying and one that had me tearing up and reaching for the tissues. Oh. I have to tell you. Oh. Um, oh, just thank you. Exquisite, exquisite payoff in this film. But you also, you take us down a different path with the character of Angelo and what happens with mm-hmm. him in the film, mm-hmm. which so many of us can relate to as well. Um, you have something that will resonate with, with virtually everybody. Every adult out there who has ever been in the dating world, I think you have something that will serve as a touchstone for people in some capacity. And that really struck me. The deeper I got into the film, the further along, and the more little elements and touches that you were putting in. Many unspoken. Many just tacit little set dress or, or something along those lines. But there's really something that everybody... There's at least one or two things in the film that is going to touch somebody that they have experienced. And I really love that because it's not often you find that in a film. Well, that, that's amazing to hear. I, uh, you know, we, we tried to put all that in there, but you never know what, uh, what people resonate with or, uh, or, or what hits or what lands and, and, or what just sort of goes by, um, you know, unnoticed or well-intentioned, but unnoticed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, it sounds like you, you were very, very, very tuned in watching the movie and you're, you're a very, um, uncommonly astute, uh, viewer. And so, uh, I'm thrilled to hear, or uh, to hear that it, that it felt that way to you. Uh, I love your take on it. I love your approach to the film and that you seemed like you were very open to what we were trying to do. You, you were, you're, you know, you like. It seemed like you had your antenna up, looking for uh, for ideas, and and I feel like that's what we're always hoping for: is that people that you know, I know a lot of people are looking for many different things in films, but it really felt like you came to it looking for um, ideas to explore, and that's that's you know, that's a filmmaker's fantasy is an audience that that wants that. So, you know, um, I, I can't thank you enough for what you're saying about it. Yeah, what was the most challenging aspect? of bringing this film to life, of bringing Hereafter to life for you as a filmmaker? Um, well, I had only had limited experience with visual effects before this. I directed a music video for Jesse Mallon, who also has some music in this, one of my best friends. Directed a music video for him with Mary Louise Parker and a whole bunch of visual effects. And uh, so I got my feet wet on visual effects with that. But... Uh, this was, you know, jumping into the ocean compared to that, <laughs> because you know, a four-minute music video uh, is is a whole different ballgame. And because Chris Walters is such a brilliant DP, sometimes scenes that weren't expected to have a visual effect wound up being an opportunity for one. And so that would always complicate things schedule-wise. If you show up on set planning to just shoot somebody walking across the street, and then the idea presents itself whether we could play with the visuals of having them not visible in a in a reflection or something even something as simple as that becomes you know an extra hour or two and so the challenge became you know you've got as a filmmaker you've got sort of a candy store in front of you of things you could try but it's always a chess game against the clock in a way where well if i if i spend this time on getting this then what what shot are we losing at the end of the day so that Mm -hmm. was the biggest challenge but also um I had so many people like the cast and the producer and everyone that were having such 
faith in me with this project that to me it was a challenge just wanting to not let people down because I felt like um, so many people kept telling me that they really thought a lot of the script and you know it's good if it reads well on the page but it's a it's a terrifying challenge to try and get a, a film this kind of odd and ambitious onto film and yeah. uh, so that was the other really daunting challenge was just I, I felt like I never wanted to let down these people that had such faith in it and uh, you know there's been films over the years that had seemed to have everything going for them and they just don't work. So um, to hear you say that this one did uh, makes me feel like um, a, a great sense of hope that I didn't let these people down. No, the film definitely works, Harry. And you mentioned the effects and we have things like, you know, Michael trying to grab Honeybee's hand and we see just the fade mm -hmm. of that go through or trying to pull her out of the way of something and can't do it. Um, even the flip of the waitress's skirt where he's trying to show, mm -hmm. you know, her best friend <laughs> Faith. Um, and it, so that Faith doesn't think that Honeybee is just off her rocker. Um, you know, those little nods to things that we've seen before, most, most famously in Ghost with Patrick Swayze yeah. and Demi Moore and Whoopi mm -hmm. Goldberg. Those kind of elements. But then you pushed it and you took it even a bit further in many instances. So I can see where that would be a concern when you, you have these great visuals and, ooh, well, we could do this and we can do this with an effect. Yeah, then you've got to you, pick and choose, you know, what darlings are you going to cut? Um, exactly, yeah. And we had an effects house in Romania that was kind enough to, you know, they they were kind enough to deal with the fact that they signed on for maybe a X number of effects and then by the end of the film, they're getting like double that sent to them to do. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, there's always time limits, too. <laughs> and, and I never I was supposed to go to Romania to help oversee the effects and the color correction. But just everything got, you know, it just didn't work out that way. And uh, and so in the end, all of that, all the effects stuff had to be done remotely. Wow. And um, uh, and they're they're, of course, a very motivated and gifted effects crew in Romania. The company's called Safe Frame, and uh, I feel bad that I won't attempt to pronounce their names. They're multi-syllabic, uh, you know, Romanian names. That's uh, Stefan and, and Seba. Those are the guys that sort of did it. And, and because they would send us a test of an effect we already did plan, it definitely made our eyes get wider with the idea, uh, or eyes, you know, bigger than our stomachs with the idea of what we could. Well, why don't we ask them to do this then? You know, <laughs> if they can do this with Scarlet's office, then why don't we see if they can do this with you know, figures raising, rising outside, ascending into the uh, into the sky. And, it, and that's one of the uh, coolest effects. Ahead. That's one of the coolest effects in the film, and you, it's very faint at first. But mm -hmm. then you start seeing it, and it gets a little less faint, a little more defined. Mm -hmm. uh, the more Michael begins to understand what this dating purgatory is and how the system works. Um, and mm -hmm. then with people fading in and out and disappearing and just some really well-done and well-placed effects, too. That's the other thing, is you can have great effects, but if... They are not used judiciously and appropriately. Mm -hmm. Well, then that, then why have them? Yeah, exactly. That I kept. That was the, uh, in a way, the criteria I kept trying to hold us to was that no effect should hopefully look like an effect. It had to 
even the sound effects, I feel like it should, you should only have sound effects that feel like they're what the characters would hear in that world. Mm -hmm. And the effects should feel organic to the shots. And I think they did a fantastic job of that. And then also, it's, I, I, I have to tell you between you and me and the internet that, uh, that there's a lot of effects that nobody will ever notice in the film because um, we went to crazy lengths to remove Michael from reflections everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you, you, would, you might not notice that he's gone from reflections all the time, but if he walks past a window, he's not, he's not there as much as we could. He's not there, but if he was there, you'd notice because we've established that he shouldn't be. And so, um, you know, imagine the, uh, the, the pain in the butt that is for the effects crew anytime we noticed another reflection that had to be removed. And, uh, you know, and we tried, to, we tried to make sure we only used it where the audience would really notice it if we didn't. But uh, it's, uh, it's funny how, like, those are sort of, in a way, invisible effects because they're only there to keep you from noticing something that would have ruined the illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it still it still took the same amount of work from the effects crew. Yeah, I noticed that uh, early on in the film when he first gets plopped back down, and he's wandering around Times Square and around New York and heading over towards uh, a restaurant bar, and mm -hmm. he's not in the glass. He's not <laughs> right. <laughs> very, <Yeah. laughs> very vampiric, very vampiric here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh -huh. yeah, so you have all kinds of those things. So I've got one last question for you, Harry. You know, now that the film is out there, everybody can see it. It's on demand. It's on Amazon Prime as well. Um, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker making this particular film, a very personal story for you uh, in its origin? What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now bring forward into your future works. Wow, that's a that's a powerful and huge question. I, I like that as a question. I um, I came out of it. I think I went into film thinking uh, that it was going to be my job to try to protect uh, my vision and make sure it winds up being exactly the way I wanted. Because uh, while there's some truth to that. Um, you know, that, that it's the filmmaker that has to kind of protect their original vision and nobody else is going to be looking out for that. People may try to shift you one way or the other. I I went into it on the first film, at least, and then from this one as well, with the perspective that it, I was going to have to try to protect it exactly the way I wanted. And then I think through the process of this one, I, I became much more aware that, like, this, there's a strength in numbers and uh, my amazing producer, my amazing editor, my amazing DP... Um, I became, a, and even all the amazing actors, I became much more comfortable just remembering that uh, I tried to always be like this, but this film really solidified it, that, that a good idea from anybody, even from a PA on set, is a good idea. And you have to try to make sure that, I felt like I was always trying this, but you have to try to make sure that when you're, uh, no matter how focused you are on what you were trying to make it into a particular moment or scene, if an idea comes up, sort of, it's good to have your ears open for that moment when uh, somebody just might say something even half jokingly, and it's uh, like a grip might walk by and make a joke, and it's like, well, that what you just said is actually a great idea. We're going to incorporate that, you know, and and so um, that same thing where. 
the film is trying to be about the fact that uh, we need other people and we need love and we're all deserving of love and we're all desirous of love. Um, I think that also holds true for non-romantic love, that like the, the being open to the, uh, the kindness of strangers and the kindness of the people around you extends to the creative process as well. It extends to every kind of relationship, and it's kind of what the world is built on. And so um, if that's not too big and pretentious an answer, that's sort of what I felt like was the main thing I came away from it with, was that, um, that uh, you try to put yourself out there and do something creative, and other people will come and add their own heart and soul to it. And uh, it, it, it doesn't take anything away from your original thing. It just enriches it. Uh, not too big and pretentious at all, Harry. Oh, Harry, thank you so, mm-hmm. so much. This has been so lovely having you on the show well, today. Thank you. I hope you'll come back again sometime with another project for Gladly. us. Uh, I hope so, too. Gladly. Thank you for having me. Thank you for everything you said about the movie. It was uh, all... Uh, uniquely thrilling. Oh, thank you, Harry. And have a good day. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Be well. Bye. Bye. And that was Harry Greenberger, Hereafter. You know, a great double feature idea for you guys, folks. You can find Double Blind and Hereafter. Both are on Amazon Prime. Um, Do a double feature on Amazon Prime with these two great fun films. Um, That is all the time we have today. Of course we ran over. We always run over. Um, Next week, we're going to have the filmmakers for Savage Nature with us. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 